Welcome to part two of our Professional Practices Alliance series on helping professional services firms to survive and thrive through the COVID-19 crisis. Today's session is focused on helping firms to plan to thrive. Just a reminder, what is the Professional Practices Alliance? Well, it is a collaboration of independent firms that specialize in advising professional services firms and their partners on all things partnership related to partnership law, partnership tax, employment law issues for firms, partnership regulation, accounting, remuneration, and also strategy. We have a very fine lineup of well-known expert PPA speakers today. We have Corin Staves of Morris Turner Gardner, who is a leading partnership law and SRA regulation specialist. Zulon Begum of CM Murray, who is a leading partnership law and M&A specialist. Claire Watkins of Bozicott LLP, who is a partnership accountant and a professional practices advisor. David Shufflebotham of Pepop Consulting, a partner remuneration specialist and in a previous life, an HR director at a leading international law firm. Rob Millard of Cambridge Strategy Group, who is a very well-known and highly regarded law firm management consultant. And finally, Sarah Chilton of CM Murray, a leading partnership and employment law specialist. And my name is Claire Murray of CM Murray. I am your session chair for today, and I am a partnership and employment law specialist. So we are going, as I say, to focus on thriving in this session. And we're going to start with Sarah and re-entry into the workplace, helping firms plan to re-enter uh, their staff, uh, bring their staff back into the workplace and, uh, and thrive during that process. And Sarah, I mean, we've, we've seen that, particularly for professional services firms and, and their professionals, um, actually homeworking can work really well. And I just wonder, you know, when the lockdown is sort of gradually lifted, how easy is it going to be for firms to actually bring staff back, particularly when they will inevitably be anxious about being back in the workplace um, and also just getting to work? So I think we, we'll probably see two camps of people when people are permitted back in the workplace. And I think they will be the people that are so anxious to get to work, either because they're sort of um, got three uh, screaming under three-year-olds at home and they can't cope with it anymore, or because they're by themselves perhaps and the isolation is just too much. Um, or some people just won't have very good work at home setups and they'll want to get back to work. So I think there'll be those people actually very anxious to get to work. But I think probably the majority of people and the studies that we're seeing coming out at the moment and um, the polling studies show that a lot of UK um, residents are actually very concerned about lockdown being lifted. I think the majority of people will be anxious about work. I think within London, we will particularly see this where people have to travel on public transport to get to work. Um, and some of the government guidance that is being potentially thought about, so the government are consulting at the moment as to what guidance they should put in place for when people return to work. Some of that guidance is around, well, providing more parking spaces, for example, for employees. That is not going to work in the City of London. Um, so aside from providing your staff with bikes, which uh, might be appropriate for some people who live within a certain perimeter and distance, then it's going to be pretty difficult to have people in the office without them going on public transport. I should say before I talk about um, you know, whether or not you can force someone back into the office and what you might do when you get people back into the office, we are likely in professional services to be the last um, tranche of 
people back to work, it, you know, physically back to work. The government um, consultation talks about various different categories of um, businesses and workers and um, offices is one of them. There is things like shops and branches and people who work in vehicles, so that's delivery drivers, etc. There's outdoor workers and there's factories, warehouses, construction and people that have to go into homes to work. And it's um, been commented that offices will probably be the last. And even under the draft consultation guidance on offices, uh, the first um, bullet point on that is that office staff should work from home if at all possible. So I think even when we're permitted to go to work, the guidance might still say work from home. Now that leads into the question as to whether or not you can make your staff come, and in fact your partners, come back to work. Can you make them be in the office if the government says, you know, you can go out and about um, and you can potentially go to work unless you work from home. I think it'd be very difficult to say to someone you have to be in the office if in fact the government guidance is if you're an office worker and you can work from home, you should work from home. Because if someone says, well, I'm very concerned about the health and safety implications of traveling to work, it's very hard to say, no, there's a real business need for you to be at work. Um, so the government uh, circulated guidance um, that might be implemented, and I have to say it's, it's entirely in consultation at the moment, but one of the points is that employees in business critical roles could go to the office. Well, I think we've probably all found that other than maybe one or two of us going in once or twice a week or once or twice a month, actually none of us are in the position of being it's business critical that we're in the office. I think it's going to be very hard to make people go back. And having said that, I think once it's become more normal to go back and people are less concerned about their health and safety issues, I think employers still need to think about a variety of factors. And one issue is discrimination. So in relation to, you know, forcing someone back or requiring someone to come back, if that's maybe deemed safe for the majority of the population, it may still not be safe for some people with protected characteristics. So those with underlying health complaints, which might be disabilities, people in black and ethnic minority groups, um, where statistically we're seeing that they are more likely to have bad outcomes of coronavirus, older people for the same reason, um, and people, for example, who are pregnant. So I think employers need to take really detailed risk assessments of their workforce and think about these things. That introduces different um, issues around data privacy. So, you know, you hold data about someone's underlying health conditions, but who can you share that with? And in fact, then the connected issue around data privacy, which will come out, I think, as soon as people start going back to workplaces, is uh, if someone shows the symptoms of coronavirus, can you share that with other people that they've been in contact with? Um, and the chances are that, yes, probably on a limited basis, if it is necessary to protect the health and safety of other people, but it's going to be really difficult times for employers to navigate these issues. And we are in, and I, I know this word is very overused, but we are in unprecedented times. The only kind of reference point we have for things like, can you subject someone to a temperature check? And can you subject someone to a COVID-19 test is drug testing in the workplace. And that is an entirely different legal you know, background. That's when you know you have a pilot and you want to make sure they're not drunk when they take off. We're in a very different um, era here, and I think the government are going to have to and be forced to give guidance. Um, I should just say um, before I sort of we move on, in terms of what employers practically should be thinking about, you know, if they want to go back to work. So I think practical things are around. Well, um, first of all, how are you going to deal with health and safety concerns? So give people a channel to filter those concerns in. So employers um, are under duty in respect of um, employees and partners who are workers in an LLP to make sure that if someone raises, say, a health and safety concern, they don't treat them in a detrimental way. 
because the raising of a health and safety concern is probably going to be a protected disclosure under whistleblowing legislation. So it's good to make sure that people know, you know where they can channel those concerns. There are additional protections for employees, not workers, in relation to health and safety concerns specifically, but really the, the basis is the same. So this concept that people need to know where they say, I'm worried about this and, and where they can you know, put those concerns and have a process in place for dealing with those concerns and have thought about how you might respond to those classic ones of, I don't want to get on the tube in the morning or I'm really worried about working next to this person or that person in the office. Other much more practical things like actually putting in place distancing measures. Are you going to be buying PPE for your workforce? Um, staggered shifts. Will you let people go out during the day to have lunch breaks or will you like literally say you come to work with everything you need for the entire day? I have to say my um, snack habit would really struggle with that, but I'm sure I'll, I'll get over that one. And other things like do you need additional washing facilities? Do you need washing facilities for face masks, for example? Do you need to put partitions and plastic screens up between desks? Um, and also, what will you do if people don't abide by these things? You know, what, what as a business, what approach do you want to take? I think it's really worth thinking about these things in advance. Do you want to be disciplining people if they don't abide by your, um, you know, requirements on safety? Or do you want to take a softer approach? Um, and if you do want to be disciplining people, then you also need to think about whether or not you are reasonable in doing that. And the normal rules would apply and, you know, is it a reasonable request that you're making of the employee and if they refuse is their refusal unreasonable and um, an example of where you might get into difficulty is if someone refuses to comply but they say that's because of another valid health and safety concern that's when you're going to need to have difficulties weighing up um the the um kind of rights and interests of various different people and presumably all of this will go in the usual having gone through these risk assessments um, this you'll then go through the usual suite of processes that an employer goes through with developing the policy and protocol, raising awareness, implementing tr large scale training and monitoring. And then, as you say, issues around enforcement and making sure that the leaders at the top are actually following in every sense. And we've seen some sort of very public examples of that, of you know, the rules yeah. that they're enforcing. I mean, yeah, and I think important. that's historically you know potentially being something where there's been a difference between in professional services partners and employees and the approach to say for working from home or you know the flexibility that some people are afforded and other people aren't and i think this this will challenge that sort of culture divide perhaps because i think as you say if you expect your employees to be in the office you're going to need to be there yourself so which leads us very nicely onto corin what about partners partners who perhaps may uh, without being uh, too generalized may tend to be older and <laughs> male and therefore perhaps within a greater sort of uh, a category of vulnerability generally for covid i mean can you bring partners back to work can you make them come back to work if you're making the the wider staff come back well it's a great question claire um and i suppose there's two aspects look at, looking at it as a lawyer um, the first is the contractual duties that partners have agreed to um, if you look to the LLP agreement, usually sometimes a partnership agreement, um, hopefully there's one of the two in, in whichever case we're talking about, um, you'll probably find that partners have agreed to a wide range of duties and obligations. For example, the duty to devote the full time and attention to the business um, and the duty to act in good faith towards the business, uh, those sorts of things, sometimes towards one another. And um, the question there is really, how is it drafted? 
it's rare in my experience that those particular provisions will say you need to devote your full time and attention to the business in the office. It's usually sort of broader than that because people have sort of um, their agreements have evolved to allow for flexible working arrangements. But it's also very common that people's flexible working arrangements are set in stone. Uh, mine, for example, I, I used to work one day at home uh, before the, the lockdown. Um, and so technically that's part of my deal as a partner. Does that mean I am now obliged to be in the office four days a week? Now, in our particular case, it was it was business driven anyway, so it has to ebb and flow according to business need. But there might be certain circumstances where partners feel that those arrangements are set in stone and they're now being turned back on them to say, no, you need to be in the office four days a week because that's the you've only got one day to work remotely. I think, frankly, the goalposts have moved now and there are so many different things under consideration that firms even if technically they could rely on those contractual provisions, would probably have difficulty enforcing them and wouldn't want to strictly enforce them anyway. Um, I also just want to touch on the general duties law. Um, as everyone will know, LLP members are agents of the LLP and owe uh, fiduciary duties towards it. Um, I don't think that extends to putting oneself in harm's way <laughs> um, in extremists. To, to be in the office, not least because the professions, the, the sort of businesses and financial services businesses that we're talking about here have shown that they are very capable of working from home and just discharging their roles otherwise than in the office. So I think it would be a very difficult argument for a firm to run uh, to say that you had to be in the office. Um, I think that Sarah touches on a really interesting point, which is the question of um, if other people do have to be in the office, those business critical roles. And we've seen that already under lockdown, that includes security personnel, front of staff personnel, printing, post room, um, tending to be the support roles rather than the fee earning roles. If you say that there are certain business critical roles that have to be in the office, uh, some of the working week, some of the time, although the working week may become seven days in order to stagger people, of course, um, then it seems improper culturally speaking to say well you the fee earners the um better paid um usually older um people can actually scratch that on older the partners tend to be older um have to be in the office as well because it it, it creates a very them and us culture um and that's not something you're going to want right? the focus of today's session is about how how you thrive um, as we come out of lockdown and as we sort of embrace a post-lockdown world um, and I don't and thinking about how you promote your culture and preserve your culture has got to be right at the heart of how you get back to the office and how you do business whether that's in the office or not uh, post this crisis. Yeah David can, thank you Corinne. Uh, David can I just ask from your particularly with your HR uh, hat on strategic hat on I mean are there any sort of particular impacts and steps that you see where, you, where firms do have a very mixed base of heavily homeworking and office sort of combination. Are there any particular things that you would flag? Yeah, I think this is um, a real silver lining out of a very dark, dark cloud. Um, because if you look at all the surveys of associates and more junior lawyers in particular, what they've said over time is they'd like more control over how they work. And um, there's been a real um, desire for more homeworking um, uh, that's been evident for a number of years now and uh, ever more persuasive as the technologies improve to allow it. Now we've got a massive um, 
experiment that has proven that it's doable. And as Corinne has just said, the goalposts have completely moved. In fact, I'd say we're on a completely different playing field. Um, so I think from that perspective, this is potentially really good news for firms that can harness um, uh, that, um, that met desire now. There, there are a few things within that. It's not entirely good news, of course, because going with that, you really have to put in place some, um, uh, you have to take some conscious steps now. You have to really direct your mind to this because I think um, the emergency situation that we've had uh, is now coming to an end and we're going to go now into a more uh, sort of solid state uh, of the new normal. And so a few things I've picked out here are, are one, you've really got to address the supervision and mentoring piece. So um, when you think about this, when you're in the office, you can pick up a lot of things as a junior by osmosis. You hear somebody on the telephone, uh, you see them uh, dealing uh, with a, a difficult cost issue, et cetera. Um, you pick it up by being there and being doing that sort of traditional apprentice style of learning. However, you're now going to have to take different steps to be able to do that. So we'll have a bit of a back to the future moment where partners are saying to clients, um, I'm going to have my junior lawyers on this call. They're going to have to tell them they're not going to get charged for it because that's definitely in the past. But that's going to have to become much more common, a much more common and conscious step. Secondly, partners are going to have to get themselves up to speed with tech because what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to be able to use Google Hangouts, they're going to have to be able to use Slack, they're going to have to be able to use Microsoft Teams to do the chat that fills the gap between your formal um, supervision um, of drafting or of, um, uh, of pieces of advice, because now we've not got that ability to see how a, how a bit of instruction has landed. If somebody's stomping around the office with a face as, as long as a, a, a as a tennis court then um, you can tell that they're in a bad mood and something you might have said has triggered it so you can rectify it now you're going to have to find things that that meet that gap uh, and technology is going to be very important do you think there are some really interesting issues as well about you know as a as a partner manager you know um performance managing and and frankly giving constructive feedback and also disciplining the whole process of doing that virtually um, where you can't see people's body language um, and you can't and also you can't bring people back from it it's, it's like a really interesting dynamic and something we have to learn to do as, as you know professionals that's better I think we could devote a, almost a whole session to that if yeah I'm honest. yeah sorry I didn't mean to distract you do you do you mind David oh sorry you've got another point um, just just two other points uh, one is uh, you want to get your um, HR and OD professionals organization design professionals looking very closely at how they establish and maintain the, the cultural characteristics of the business. Corinne's picked up on that. And also remember, you've lost a differentiator. If, you, if loads of people are going to be working at home a lot of the time, what makes your workplace different? Good question. I'm going to just briefly come back to you, Corinne, if I may, just about what is, what is the SRA saying about the regulatory impact on coming out of lockdown and how firms manage that? Thanks, Claire. So when we're talking about um, the SRA, obviously this is relevant to, to law firms. Um, I had a bit of a look after, after our preparation calls to see where it said that law firms needed to keep their people safe. 
And um, there's nothing that says you have to keep your team safe. I mean, as long as your team is diverse and properly supervised, then you're good. Um, <laughs> do what you want. No, um, I, <laughs> we, we obviously um, have the, the general laws, which have the health and safety uh, piece covered quite, quite fully, as, as Sarah has covered. And we do have this obligation under the code for firms that we need to identify, monitor and manage all material risks to our business, including those related to connected practices where that's relevant. And then we've got other uh, aspects of the code that talk about the financial viability and the, and the business viability um, and uh, monitor and identify the, the risks to the continuity of the viability or the stability of the business. And clearly these in a people business, um, the health and well-being of the team is, is a really potentially high impact risk and obviously we've seen the likelihood of illness soar compared to the previous situation um, due to this global pandemic so i think those are the sorts of issues that firms need to be thinking about from an sra perspective I, but I, I would just stress that this isn't exclusive to sra firms obviously a, a culp or law firm managers have an obligation to report in if they feel there's any serious failings on that front which is different from an unregulated business but all businesses are going to be thinking about these sorts of risks it's going to be front and center of what they're doing um, firstly to protect the business but secondly because if the people aren't happy they're not going to be effective and productive and, and serving clients so it's it's driven by the sra in this particular case but it's it's not going to be exclusive to regulated businesses so so this takes us on to you know if we've got people particularly in professional services potentially working from home much more extensively for a much longer period what does this do to firm's decision-making about office space where either you've already signed up to a new lease or you're planning uh, a move or just expanding you know we as a firm were looking for example at extra space um, just because of expansion and now because you know home working is working so well actually we are revisiting that and I, I just want to rob I mean I, I have stood I've stood in the back of the room you know where people are clamoring to hear you speak about law firm and professional services office space so what what are your thoughts on how all of this will affect office space planning for professional services thank you claire and, and yes I, I think there's going to be a massive impact it's worth just casting the mind back a, a, a couple of years to when uh, firms used to have very shiny client facing spaces the reception area and the meeting rooms and and then quite dingy back offices often and that's changed in the last few years, and it's changed because of remote working. So in the last two or three years, we've had architects saying, how do we design a space so that it attracts people into the office? If they can work from home, how do we make them choose to come into the office, especially in cities like London and New York, where you've got a miserable commute? And so they've been taking signals from high-end uh, restaurants and, and, and premium air, airport lounges and places like that in designing spaces, uh, canteens included, and, and uh, having nice food, and, and, and things, the kind of things that would attract people in, a creating a more collegial, uh, collaborative, clubby atmosphere. And then having an ecosystem of spaces. So you have collaborative spaces, and you have open plan spaces, and smaller offices, but with better designed furniture. And I think all these things are, are going to, um, come back with a vengeance as we as we go back to the offices uh, the, the, these trends are uh, especially well there's just going to be so much more pressure on 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 people staying at home uh, versus going in so so offices are going to have to be that much more 
uh, attractive. And I don't think that uh, hanging uh, plastic uh, or, or some other kind of uh, barrier between the open spaces, uh, the, the, the open plan workspaces is going to hack it in terms of uh, uh, anything more than an emergency measure right in the beginning. Yeah, it's not going to be very and, and the other thing that, that architects are talking about is, is, um, is flexibility and, and taking a modular approach to the interior so that when needs change and that need may be driven by new technology coming in, it may be uh, a different configuration to the workforce, but being able to, 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 to change the, um, uh, the configuration really quickly. Uh, so an example I, I know of was a firm in Washington, D.C., where they, uh, a lounge area gets changed into a work area for the summer associates and then back into a lounge area when they go off back to, to law school. And um, that kind of thinking is going to drive the, um, uh, the design of offices going forward. And, and it's not just going to be less space. Uh, I, I saw a, an article just recently where, where a, a leader of a very large firm was saying, well, if, if people can work at their dining tables uh, with an, and a meter around that, uh, then clearly they can do with far less space in the office. So we can, we can make the offices smaller and, and, and compress people, which uh, it, doesn't see, it seems to be tone deaf, uh, given the, the, the current fear of being close to people. And that's likely to continue for quite a while. So um, we, we may actually need more space. Uh, and, and if we, we need more space and we can't get more space, then that may mean staggering the workforce. And some come in on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays or something, and the others on the other days of the week. Um, and we may have people that come in every night and, and not only vacuum, but, but disinfect. Uh, there are all sorts of things we, we don't know. And I think there's going to have to be a lot of open dialogue with employees uh, as well as designers about what the options are as we move out of this. And what about clients? I mean, what, what role do you think they will have in sort of helping firms determine what they need office-wise? I don't think clients are particularly interested in offices beyond the, the meeting areas, and, and perhaps those are, are less important as well now, as, as a lot of the meeting is going to be virtual too. Especially as, we, uh, as the virtual working and the remote working tools become better. I mean, imagine where this video conference that we're on now, imagine how that could be produced in two or three years' time when perhaps we have VR-enabled video conferencing. So I don't think clients are, clients of course are crucially important, but in this particular instance, perhaps the, the employees are more important. Yeah, I loved your reference when we were chatting previously about um, the, the potential for Microsoft holoportation. That, um, do you think that's coming soon? Is that, will that be a reality soon? I don't know. It's up to Microsoft, I guess. And uh, I can tell you, uh, with the building the Law Firm of the Future conference uh, with the IBA holds every November, about six months ago, we looked at VR-enabled um, VR -enabled video conferencing, and it was very clunky. Uh, they had clumsy little avatars with name tags on them, not very good at all. Uh, and, and that was a function of bandwidth, the limitation. Right. And if you Google that now, you find some quite sophisticated products. So, you know, fast forward another six months, another year into the future, we may all be putting on VR headsets uh, if they still exist if something more sophisticated doesn't come out. And, um, and, and, and having our meeting that way, the point is we don't know, but technology is accelerating far faster than anybody could have imagined even a year ago. Yeah.
Thank you. And Corin, just a quick word. I, we were talking about the extent to which those firms who are already, have already committed to new space, um, whether or not um, your, you know, your, part, your property colleagues were talking about whether or not, is there an opportunity for firms to revisit the deals that they've done? Um, the short answer is it depends in terms of where you are along that trajectory and um, what sort of terms you've been able to negotiate and therefore what your negotiating position was in the first place. Um, I think as a, the, the, the short answer seems to be that as a practical matter, even if there's no legal scope to negotiate, there's a lot of renegotiating happening. And if somebody turned around to a prospective landlord or a current landlord and said, we literally can't pay you in two months time, we need to do something about this, then um, the, the well-informed landlord is going to engage in that context because in two months' time, they're going to be worse off than, than if they had engaged, I would have thought. C could I just mention what, one thing on office space while I've, while I've got the talking speak? Mm. Um, I think to David's point on culture, in a socially distant world, I think that even if we are in the office, we're not going to be able to pick up on social cues and all the things that, that David rightly points out are so valuable in terms of what we enjoyed in the office previously because of social distancing. If we've got cellular offices, we're going to do it. So we have one person in an office rather than two people in an office. So we may as well be sitting in our sheds, spare bedrooms, you know, off home offices, wherever it is, because the distance between people in offices, I think for a long time to come, even without the plastic screens, Rob, uh, is going to be much increased. So we may as well be at home. Love it. So let's talk about um, business plans, strategic business plans. So, you know, most firms will have a three to five year business plan. Um, you know, for example, we're halfway through ours. And, and so I guess, Claire, the question is, from a, a, a strategic planning point of view, do we just regard this as a blip and a temporary blip? And, um, you know, our business plan is the, is the map that, you know, if, as long as we just hold to it and um, th that will see us through, you know, just stick to the plan. Um, or actually, should we be revisiting it and tweaking it? Or actually, are there some firms who are just going to need to rip it up and completely rewrite a new one based on new circumstances that they're, fa that they're facing? What, what are you seeing? Well, I think it's a combination of all that, which isn't a particularly helpful answer, I know. Um, but I think over the last week, I have been looking at a few business plans. It seems to have ramped up, and I'd, I think it's probably linked to firms wanting to get access to the business interruption loans and, and different forms of finance that are out there. And therefore, the banks are saying, where's your business plan? And if you present the one that you had pre-COVID-19, they're probably going to say, well, hang on, this has got to have changed. So that they, I do find they're looking at, they're all looking at very similar elements of the business plan. Um, I think the first point is, is looking at just having a quick look back at how things were before, how we won work. I mean, we all won work through networking and meeting people face to face and referrals. Um, and I think, I always think there's, there's a sort of, um, there's a statistic out there that says that most professional practices firms win 90% of their work through referrals. I personally would say it's probably more than that. Um, but, you know, once you get to know somebody and you're doing good work for them, then, then the referrals tend to flow. So I don't think that element will change. But the networking and meeting people obviously will, because well, at least for the, for the short to medium term, will have to change because we're all doing it in a different way. I have had conversations with um, not just partners in, in our clients, but some of the staff there as well. And there is a disconnect between those who say, 
oh, well, it's great working from home. I think I could carry on doing this. There's no problem. And those who say, well, yeah, it, it's fine working from home. We can get the job done, but we can't win new work from home. Well, I think you, you can win some new work from home. You've just got to do it differently. And I think we included are finding our way through how to do it differently. But you've got to keep the top line going if you want the bottom line to be strong. Uh, I think business plans are looking at where they spent money. I mean, typically they spent money on the, the two big things were staff costs and property costs, and then everything else was sort of in a, in a pool together. So how is that going to look different? Well, I think we're on the work side of things. I think there are firms that are gearing up for different types of work. Um, a, a client of mine said that geography is playing a part because they now have offices all over the place uh, where they live. And so they're looking at whether they can attract work just from their local area, which might be something that some firms can consider, particularly if they're doing, you know, wills, family law, that kind of thing. Maybe there is they can tap into lo the local community. Uh, I think there are new areas that will emerge that will require new partners, perhaps. So if there's a firm that is not particularly strong in tech, well, that might be a, a sector of the future that they might want to get involved in. There's, I think there's a refocus on what the client needs now rather than what we want to sell them. And that's always been a problem that professional practices have faced. We like to sell all the things that we think we're so brilliant at, but that sometimes is not really what the client wants. So we have to focus on what the client wants and give them that. And provided we can do it properly, uh, effectively, then they will come back to us with more work. Fee arrangements, I think, will probably change. Uh, will the out? I think we were talking about this in a in a planning call actually. That will hourly rates change? You know, will our hourly rates that we charge at the moment remain the same, or will we have to look at those? You know, hourly rates are very very high. Will they need to change in due course? There will be a, some kind of pressure on pricing, and I think clients will want greater certainty on pricing, although. I think they, frankly, they want that now as well, but they, I think they'll want that more in the future. Um, when it comes to costs, uh, well, there's, obvious, there's obviously the need for a lot of firms to cut costs and there will be some ways that they can do that. And maybe the, the office space that we were talking about earlier is one of those ways. If you're thinking of expanding into a, another floor or something, maybe that's on hold now and looking at working from home is, is a really viable alternative. Uh, there will be things like thinking about outsourcing certain certain services rather than having them in-house and looking at whether that provides a better solution for you and a cheaper, cheaper solution and ways to become more efficient and whether there are means that will be, be more efficient and, and cheaper at the same time but still give you the same level of um, service to your clients. But there's also going to be investment, I think, that needs to go into business plans and this is probably the thing that I've seen in business plans or rather not seen in business plans. I think in the future, and this may be further down, a little bit further down the track, but there will need to be investment, I think, in tech and innovation. And for the point that I think uh, David was making that, you know, we all are having to get used to this new tech and there's going to have to be some more investment in it for some firms, but also investment in the new way of developing business. So for those firms that don't spend an awful lot on, on marketing because they've found a way to do it that's, that worked under the old regime, I think that might change now and they might need some help from experts who know how to generate business in this kind of remote way of working. Uh, and then business plans, I think they're, they're going to have to focus a lot more on uh, cash. And I, I know it's my, it's my favourite word. I seem to bring this into every talk I ever do. But the cash is, is more important than profit at the moment. Um, 
arguably it always has been, but I think setting up, setting lockup targets and setting cash targets and setting realistic WIP targets so that you don't automatically go to a client who's in, a, in difficulty and say, well, okay, we'll discount our fees. Think about other things. Think about considering uh, flexible payment terms or alternative fee arrangements. There are various other things that you can think about first. Uh, you need greater discipline with working capital and I think that needs to be brought into business plans so that it's something that everybody focuses on um, as well as uh, considering how you're going to deal with distributions to partners are those going to be extended I mean you know uh, distributed more slowly over a longer period of time to preserve the cash maybe that will also be linked to fixed shares for fixed share partners as well I think generally in business plans, there's, there needs to be a focus or a, or a section of the business plan that perhaps wasn't there before that's entitled collaboration. And that's not just financial, but it's all the things that we've been talking about. How can we collaborate in this kind of working environment and, and make it work? And finally, I think those, who, uh, those firms who have never relied on external finance, and that's great if you've been able to finance your firm without having to go to a, to a third party, notwithstanding that I know there are banks listening to this and, and we love you dearly, all the banks. I think it's a good idea to, to consider external finance because uh, paradoxically those, those firms who have wanted to get their hands on the business interruption loans but have never had any uh, external finance before have probably found it more difficult to get the loans or not just the, the C-bills loans, but any kind of loan, than those who already have some kind of facility set up with the bank. So, so get to know your bank manager. Um, you may need to consider things like debt factoring in the short to medium term and keep that cash flow forecast rolling. I do find a lot of forecasts in business plans are run along the lines of the financial year because that's the way we all think, but it needs to be a rolling 12 month or 24 month cash flow forecast if you can, because it, it, it makes more sense where I think firms could be particularly exposed, and I'd be interested how you think they address this, is partner tax reserves, especially if you're coming off you know, a series of really good years, but where perhaps the firm isn't reserving in real time against the current year, they're reserving against the next tax payments, but without actually thinking about longer term reserves, um, really substantial payments that will have to be made out of subsequent lean years, which might then result in the funding uh, needs that you're talking about. That is a great point and actually actually my final point was sort of linked to that in a way which is think about 2021 and think about it now because all the deferred liabilities like the VAT, PAYE, deferred liability, you know there, there are various things out there at the moment where you're deferring things but you're not getting rid of them, they're going to come back to your bum in 2021. A lot of chickens that are going to come home to roost next year, just late, later this year that we actually need to be thinking about. Rob, just very briefly before um, we come on to sort of talent and pruning, quick word on what firms are, what you're seeing in terms of how firms are looking at their strategy. Well, I, I had a managing partner last week tell me that they were two months into a four-year strategy and they'd concluded that the whole four years had now elapsed and they needed to start again. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I do think a, a lot of strategies are based on assumptions that are, are, are of questionable validity now, maybe not invalid, but they need to be re revisited. And again, this is not something that's new. This is more, more like a, a trend that has been there for a couple of years being accelerated. And what I mean by that is that uh, VUCA, this, this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world that people have been talking about, truly is real. 
and so the linear way of planning of, of uh, setting objectives and putting rigid plans together and then telling everybody what to do and hoping that the the world won't change until you've met your objectives that, that's really gone out the window and one has to develop a far more agile way of planning and the way that you do that i believe is you set what i like to call your you know, your true north principles make make sure everybody understands what the two or three things it are that the firm intends to achieve over the next three to five years and the boundaries within which you're going to achieve that and then drive down responsibility for actual action as low as you can and then you drive you you drive the control of that strategy through where you invest and you need to get your investment decisions uh, the processes for making investment decisions a lot more refined but so it's about coping with change as it comes at you rather than having a, a rigid three to five year plan of uh, you know, 50 pages long and lots of turgid text yeah well get it down to one powerpoint slide and then stick to it that would be good yeah thanks great so i would have to say that you know having been through uh various financial crises and whatever sort of you know brexit referendum year crisis all that sort of thing um where when money gets tight in professional services firms um good behaviors uh, uh, kind of often go out the window and partners often turn on each other and they focus on the weakest link or the, the, the perceived weakest link at that particular time um although it might be someone who actually in the previous year had an amazing year it's just in this particular environment they're struggling um and i wonder though if we can encourage firms instead of looking and, and you know first at their weakest links actually to look at their strongest links look at their talent and you know you're having revisited their strategy david um, as a firm and just refreshed or refocused um, what do firms then do about really focusing on the key talent and making them feel loved and embedded within the organization I think this is a critical point, Claire, because as, um, as the other Claire has just mentioned, you've really got to take care of your top line in this circumstance. You've really got to identify where those deep and meaningful client relationships are that keep on giving you work, come rain or come shine. And you've got to be able to differentiate them between the partner relationships that are there in those strong um, uh, strong revenue generation uh, places and those partners that are, are are great at doing the work but maybe are work managers rather than work generators now you've got to always have both of course and as rob has said once you revisit that strategy once you revisit that strategy in terms of what's your top talent what's what are your top clients What's your business infrastructure going to look like? You've then got to really focus it down. So that planning, I think, of where you want to be comes first. And then you've got to say, well, who's going to help us get there? Are they in the right positions now? Do they need to shift slightly their focus? And also, sadly, which bits of our business are revealed during this crisis as they are in any crisis um, that actually don't deliver now and can't deliver in the future? And what are we going to do about that? So that is the critical bit in terms of looking at your talent. But for goodness sake, spend as much time, if not more, on the top talent as on those people you're going to um, uh, be reluctantly saying uh, goodbye to in due course. What sort of things sort of to, to help 
you know, the top talent. And I, I completely agree with, with your idea about, you know, don't just, don't just focus on the weakest links first. Actually, your priority should be on the people who are going to help drive the business through this. So what sort of things should firms be thinking about doing to make them feel the love and, and, and then to kind of really embed them and, and frankly, then in a, yeah. in a second, Sarah, how to hang on to them for as long as possible from a, from a, a legal point of view. Well, love, love in a professional context is spelt uh, time, attention and cash. So if you um, focus on those three things, you won't go far wrong. But I think that one of the key things, Claire, is to actually take the time to um, do some client listening with those key partners so that they can give you off the back of that uh, some really good input as to where your plan should be. Because once a partner feels that they are really part of what the business is going to be going forward, uh, I think that's critical in terms of you taking the business forward. If you've got a good uh, partner evaluation system uh, and it's accurate, that obviously helps. Um, but it, because we've changed circumstances, you've got to try and uh, help those key partners adapt and feel real part of what the future holds yeah and make sure you know who's on as you described it the talent map yeah it's going to be really driving this i love this idea of kind of you know the hot spots of talent around the organization and almost in the same way as you kind of do a, a, a i guess a balanced scorecard for exits actually a balanced scorecard based on your strategy for talent and kind of you know knowing who to focus the focus the love on and as you say the time the attention the cash you know as needed and 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 the best firms that i see are already doing this they have a really clear view of where their talent is and that means they can move quickly if you've got to put a talent map in place now you're going to be behind the curve of some of your competitors so if you haven't got a talent map in place already get one mm. So we're hanging on to the talent with love and money, but Sarah, how else can we hang on to them? Well, I mean, I'd say try and hang on to them with love and money, better thing to do. But if you can't do that, then I suppose you need to look at what things you have in place, um, typically in your LLP agreement, that would uh, prevent them from leaving and crucially taking talent and clients with them. Um, and I think what we probably will see as well is uh, potentially some behavior amongst partners perhaps who feel vulnerable of trying to hog clients and cement relationships, which actually means that they are more of a risk because uh, not only might they leave and try and take them with them, but they might have spent the last three months really sort of thinking that that's where their leverage lay and therefore they've invested a lot of time and effort into that relationship. So I think the um, normal risks are potentially exacerbated in relation to actually clients leaving with people. And um, I mean, you potentially are in a difficult position if you don't have adequate restrictions and provisions in your LLP agreement already, because um, we don't have time to get into the topic today, but there are issues potentially around decision making and changing LLP agreements in this environment. There's both the practical and human issue of getting people to agree to something that they might perceive to be not in their best interests um, if they are looking to keep their options open you might not get a majority to make any changes to the LLP agreement, but also you may not have in place in your LLP agreement the ability to make changes without in-person meetings, for example. Now, hopefully you will have that, but um, that's something to think about. 
In terms of what you should be looking at, well, it's the classic restrictive covenants. Um, and when I say that, I, I mean things that cover also um, preventing sort of team moves and potential waiting room provisions. So making sure that you don't have a raft of exits in one go. There are two reasons why that's useful right now. One is the obvious one around retention of clients and retention of talent and staff and making sure that people don't up sticks and take the team with them but the other is a run on capital um, from a partnership perspective so you don't want all your partners leaving at the same time so staggered departures is really important so you know think if you've got those sorts of things uh, in place um, and then the other aspect is garden leave and whether or not you know if you do have partner resignations people looking to leave can you in fact put them on garden leave for a period of time um, to effectively sever that connection that they have with the clients and with the team and better protect your business um, I mean I, I don't really think we, we don't have much time for me to go into any more detail but I think it's a case of looking at what you've got reviewing to see whether it's fit for purpose now and if it's not then thinking about practically, are you going to be able to get through any changes? If not, then you know that is the position you're in, and you just have to think about alternative strategies, uh, which we've been discussing about really trying to retain people in different ways. Great, thank you. Just in the last few minutes, Zulon. Um, so it is inevitable though that firms will want to, uh, so we say, euphemistically reshape the partnership, um, and um, let's hope that firms don't you know, become just too focused on PEP and that, that you know, and that they do have like a multifactorial approach. Um, uh, but it is inevitable, though, that um, any sort of focus on PEP, for example, will result in partner exits. I mean, there are other reasons as well. It, it does sort of exacerbate that the current crisis will really uh, shine a light on kind of partners who are perceived to have been, for example, underperforming or just not... Uh, very collaborative, good citizens, etc. So what, what sort of issues should firms be thinking about in terms of, you know, reshaping their partnership? Thanks, Claire. Um, I think it's, it's, it's not simply a matter of PEP. I think um, the, the point that the other Claire made out, uh, about earlier around top line is also relevant here because firms will also be looking at revenue generating and non-revenue generating partners at the same time. Um, I don't think any firm is going to be contemplating the future right now without really having a deep think about, uh, about their headcount, and that includes, of course, their partner, partner headcount. And I think it's quite apt using the term pruning the partnership, um, because you could be pruning just, just taking out the excess and keeping your existing shape, or is it a really, a uh, really more radical reshaping of your Buxus ball, for example. Um, so we, we've already started actually seeing in the market that some firms have already started to exit some of the partners and quite, um, quite understandably, they've probably started with the more low hanging fruit, as I, as I referred to, um, in terms of some partners who may have been consistently underperforming even before this current um, crisis started. Um, there are lots of traditional paternalistic type partnerships out there who are happy to carry um, underperforming partners in benign economic times, but that becomes very impossible in these kind of crisis situation. So um, where you have underperforming partners, of course, the first starting point will be, should really be um, considering what your rights 
and obligations are under, under the partnership agreement to be able to exit those partners. So um, ensuring that you have a provision in your partnership agreement that allows you to exit people with um, cause, whether that under whether that's underperformance or something else, or even simply with notice. Uh, and if you don't have those provisions, then it then it becomes much more trickier. So once once um, firms have actually gone through the process of uh, you know the easy pickings in in terms of the existing underperformers, um, they'll probably be moving very shortly on to uh, more radical reshapings that, that I just mentioned, and that will largely be driven by what their COVID survival strategy is and what their plans for the post-COVID era are going to be. So firms will be really thinking about. What, what, it, what in the post-COVID era, what is the kind of firm that they want to be? What shape, what size, what kind of people do they need to drive that business? What kind of practice areas are going to be in demand? Uh, and then really um, reshape the partnership to meet that kind of, um, the plan for the future effectively. And they'll be looking at their constitutional abilities to execute those kind of plans and the majorities that are required in the processes. Yes, absolutely. Again, you need to be able to have the ability to exit partners um, uh, and then uh, thinking about what the process is under your partnership agreement as well in terms of exiting those partners. You, you need to go through that process. Even if you don't have a process, um, putting it, consider putting one in place so that it's not challenged by partners as being um, uh, an unfair process and therefore uh, a decision made in bad faith. Any kind of discretionary power to remove a partner requires that to, discretion to be exercised in good faith and rationally and not capriciously and that includes taking into account all relevant information. Um, so for example in relation to underperforming partners it would be uh, information relating to the underperformance uh, and this is where it becomes key to ensure that when you're doing appraisals that you really keep contemporary, contemporaneous um, notes about um, the outcome of, the, of those appraisals uh, and if, if you don't then again it becomes much more difficult to uh, in that process of trying to exit partners and um, to do so if you can't point to the actual um, it, information and the notes and, and the conversations that were had at the time about that, that underperformance. Which then leads on to you're basically operating in a vacuum of evidence as to the real reasons as to why you're exiting someone which leaves you open Sarah in sort of 20 seconds to what sort of risks? Uh, discrimination. I mean, and you've probably all heard me talk about this before, but you know, if you uh, haven't documented things before, let's say someone uh, goes off on maternity leave or goes off on a period of long-term sick leave, um, then you're going to be in difficulty if you try and retrospectively say, well, they were performing badly before they went on sick leave or before they went on maternity leave, because where's your evidence? And that is going to leave you way exposed to a claim for discrimination on the grounds of pregnancy, maternity or disability. They're not the only claims though, so we see a lot of age discrimination rising out of this. And I think um, what I'd say about you know, appraisals is um, absolutely echo what Zulon says, but we do see cultural changes and I think there's you know, trends towards not having partner appraisals and not having that sort of traditional system. And whilst I think culturally there may be benefits to that, I do think from a pure legal risk perspective, you are exposing yourself. If you have not yeah. been down concerns about someone's performance in the preceding 12 month period and then you try and do something about it and that person says well hang on a minute I'm 65 and I've got an underlying health condition I think that's actually why you're getting rid of me 
if you can't justify it, you're going to be in difficulty. It's an evidential nightmare. Um, we're going to wrap up in a second, but Rob, we've had a question um, about uh, revisiting strategic plans and being more agile. And the question is um, uh, that uh, the question is seeking in seeing increased focus on interest in scenario planning. And I know you've talked about that, and um, just wondering about your thoughts on that. Yes, indeed. I, I've had two queries in the last week about scenario planning, and it's not something that law firms have asked for, but particularly before. What's uh, that? So what does it look? I mean, it sounds obvious, but what does it look like? Well, it's, it's about how do we set our strategy if we don't have basic assumptions in place as to what the future is going to be like. And so we need to go through a process of working out what uh, scenarios are not forecasts, they're plausible uh, futures that, that might, might come to to. to uh, to be and very very briefly what you do is you go through a series a an exercise it's a structured exercise to define these futures and then you look at what your firm would do under each of those futures uh, in, 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 with some specificity and, and what that typically does is it gives the, you a list of things that you should be doing anyway and then a, a list of things that would be contingency plans if some uh, future came to be but once you've gone through that, then you can say, well, we're going to we make we're making the following assumptions about what our clients will need and what the markets are going to be like. And we're going to base those true north principles that I mentioned earlier on those. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's what scenario planning is about. So we should all be considering scenario planning. I mean, it sounds very multiverse, um, but, but it's. Sounds yeah, really I mean, typically Thank law you. firms have wanted to lead straight into the plan. Uh, and, and I think. Given that we uh, we absolutely we don't know what the future holds, uh, it's setting a set of concrete assumptions that are, are, are empirically sound and everybody buys into is, is crucial. Okay, great. So in the last minute, um, if you'll allow me one more minute, it's just to ask each of you just for your one recommendation for professional services firms to help them thrive in the sort of twelve to twenty-four months after the crisis. Corin, I'm going to start with you. Clients, 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 clients. Um, I, I could expand on that, but it, it seems to me, to Claire's point, it's about turnover. We've got to understand what our clients want, how we can provide it, and we've got then to fit into whatever they want from us, because if we don't have those strong relationships, we're not generating turnover, we're not going to thrive, we're probably not even going to survive. Harsh. <laughs> um, Claire? Well, uh, that was, I suppose, was going to be my, my point, but um, I think I'll say, remember that we're, well, not all of us, but most of us are in a partnership and remember what a partnership is. Don't, this now is not the time to be falling out with any of your partners and, and having arguments. Mm. Got to find, and it goes back to uh, Sulon's point about, um, you know, pruning the partnership afterwards now is not the time to be thinking about arguing with partners we've got to find some way through this and then do it in a more strategic well thought out manner i agree look outwards not inwards that's yeah. where all your efforts should be absolutely zulon um just kind of, re kind of touching again on the point about pruning the partnership i i would say that firms need to be really considered about it and um, not take any knee-jerk um, uh, reactions to it and also not to take a drip-drip approach because that can really erode confidence uh, in the partnership and, and that flow, flows through to your um, employee population in general and also when you're doing that have a plan to actually really engage the people that you do retain, uh, engage and infuse and motivate them going forward. 
so if you're going to execute a plan just do it don't kind of make it over an extended period just bite the bullet do it and move on yeah okay great uh david um very simply uh, map your talent against your revised strategic plans and your business imperatives and act got it thank you sarah I would say plan. So, you know, make sure you have a plan about how people are coming back to work. Communicate that plan to people so that you don't have anxious and stressed people in your business. And hopefully those things will mean that they, one, are less stressed and anxious and therefore more committed. But also that is giving the impression to your employees and partners that you are in control and that will help consolidate the workforce and make sure that they are with you as we go through the next 12 to 18 months. Thank you. And Rob, finally. Well, I wrote an article on this in the Global Legal Post last week, and that is watch the fault lines, watch the, the pre-existing tensions and contradictions that come back and new ones that have emerged because of this crisis and deal with them quickly and resolve them quickly. Uh, there might be tensions between clients and the firm, they might be within the firm, but if the, the, these things are going to come back and if they, uh, they are allowed to fester, it's going to cause an internal crisis, probably towards the end of this year, early next year, uh, which could be worse than what we have right now. Great, thank you. And I think my final point would be actually just in whatever you have to do from a business perspective, and we will all have to try and we will all have to do and take decisions we don't want to take. Actually, just try and be kind. The people that we're dealing with, whether they're staff or partners, they're all human beings, they all have feelings and families. And I think if we um, can just sort of keep that front and center and how we deal with each other in whatever decision making, I think that will take us all a long way and get us through this together. I want to thank you all so much for, for joining us. For um, I want to thank the panel, uh, fabulous as ever. Thank you so much. Um, this uh, recording, this session will be available shortly um, for you to listen again and share with your colleagues and contacts if that would be of interest. Um, thank you so much. There will be some follow-up sessions as well, and we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you again, everyone, so much. Bye-bye.